Take a network break. Grab a virtual donut and traipse with us through this week's tech news. We've got stories on 5G slicing to the desktop, Microsoft adding chat GPT to cut down on pesky email composition, financial results, Skyborn 5G, and some FU. Uh, stay tuned for a Tech Bytes podcast after the news. We're sponsored by VMware. We're going to talk about cloud migration and operating in a multi-cloud environment. We talk with VMware partner Expedient. They're a cloud service provider about how they help clients migrate their VMware environments to the cloud. Uh, if you like Network Break, check out our other podcasts, including Day to Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, and our newest podcast, Kubernetes Unpacked and Heavy Strategy. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversation about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's dive into some FU or follow-up. Uh, last week, Greg, we mentioned a Microsoft outage that affected Teams, and maybe orgs shouldn't necessarily be putting all their productivity tools in one vendor basket, but uh, a listener wrote in to say Microsoft's strategy is to bundle Teams into other services, so customers are already paying for it, even if they aren't using it, which kind of makes it hard for a CFO to justify spending money on a separate collaboration option. That's right, and that's exactly what Microsoft has been doing for 20 years. It's all about the bundle. Once they got you to take Windows, and then you were on top of the platform, they could then use that to sell you Word, Office, Word and Excel, and Access, and then they came along and turned it into a bundle so that you got it all in a price, and then they threw PowerPoint in there for free, and then increased the price later once you were sort of trapped on that platform. And that's something that they've done repeatedly over the years. So Hyper-V was one, SharePoint was another uh, and this idea of bundling has taken off much more widely now. Uh, the idea of subscriptions is that if I can produce you a bundle of products, like in the consumer market, it's uh, Netflix, for example. If I can get you to buy a bundle of movies, instead of just buying one movie at a time, why don't I sell you all the movies you want for a month? And uh, it goes on and on. Once you're in, they start off at $6 a month, and now it's $14 a month and so on. Um I think my point was, though, last week is that, yes, Teams is here and it's part of your package, so you might as well use it. And maybe that's the problem. But what I also think is happening is that um, you're going to see more um, recognition that the competitive products aren't quite good enough to get away. So if Teams is being sold effectively for free or for some nominal, you know, 3 or $4 a headcount, then products like WebEx or Slack have to be, you know, charging ten to twenty dollars a a headcount to make them work for that, and they've then they've got to be that much better to get through the door. And so far, I would say that neither Webex or Slack are very well done. And of course, as Slack sold to Salesforce, they made a number of uh, less than excellent decisions. So really, the the path for Teams to be the dominant platform is is happening. And really, it's just Teams and Zoom at this point, and the rest are sort of, you know, fractional players in in niche markets. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and that's that bundling has always been part of Microsoft's strategy. Uh, another follow-up mm. or FU, uh, after Intel released their horrible financial results, we made a comment about whether our CEO, Pat Gelsinger, would take a pay cut. And it looks like it's happening. Intel announced that executives would get a cut in compensation, including the big boss. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about this. Um, you know, there's a couple of different ways to look at this and say, like, you know, well, the company is struggling, so make the employees suffer. Um <laughs> Sort of makes sense because you know, maybe they're not working hard enough or they've been, you know, whatever. But the the flip side here is that shareholders exist to take a risk. So what they've really done is said, well, we're not going to um, change our dividend that we've been paying out to shareholders. A lot of people buy Intel because it pays out a $2.5 billion dividend every quarter mm. to shareholders. So instead of, you know, saying, well, congratulations, shareholders, you took the risk and let the share price drop, you've now got a situation where they're making the uh, employees take the hit 
for the lower share price, right? For the for the losses and for the damage instead of the shareholders. And that's that's something that, you know, I don't know about you, but it feels to me like it's a little bit broken, if that makes sense. I take your point. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to see executives take a pay cut when the company doesn't perform because that's generally sort of how it's supposed to work and which is why they get such a high compensation in general anyway, because they're supposed to be bringing so much value. And if they're not, they should pay. Uh, and the top line on Gelsinger's pay cut is 25%. Uh, that's his base pay. Uh, but CNBC did some computation because most of his compensation actually comes via stock. So his overall compensation cut, according to CNBC, comes to about 0.17%. So I don't know that he'll actually miss it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And in terms of hitting yeah. employees, Intel's <laughs> cutting its 401k matching program in half from 5% to 2.5%. Uh, and suspending merit raises and companies' bonuses. So it's not just the high-paid executive suite taking it. It is also falling on, you know, sort of the standard employee, which I do think is a little unfair. Yeah, yeah. If you sort of look back at the idea of capitalism, the idea was that money would move to where there was, would bring most benefit to society. Mm -hmm. And that's generally where money is made. So productivity would increase. If you could, you know, invest money in a farm to improve food production, that was a good thing instead of just doing it manually, you know, which is what happened in the 17th and 18th century. And, um, the idea here that suddenly the the workers have to suffer because something's happened that the executives have achieved, and they do share some responsibility. But I have mixed feelings about the fact that it, you know the shareholders aren't taking the hit here, and they're the people who are supposed to be taking investment risk right. around the company. And this feels you know like uh, something that should uh, doesn't feel right. It feels like a HR move to make the salary slaves work harder, and it also is going to promote sort of like this idea of workaholism or workism where, you know, people just work more and more and more. Particularly in America, worker productivity has been falling recently. That is the amount of, they do measurements of national productivity. You know, well, fine, but productivity isn't determined by the worker. It's usually determined by tools and productivity tools and the use of technology to accelerate performance, you know, and so forth, as we've talked about plenty of times. So I think this is a really undesirable situation, and I'm pretty surprised that their employment agreements allow for it. Yeah. On the shareholder issue, I take your point that, you know, this is a risky thing. It's not supposed to be a guarantee when you invest in a company like that, but I'm sure Intel's thinking if we ding the dividend, shareholders might sell, which would doc drop the stock price, which would probably really be where it hurts Pat Gelsinger's compensation. So I'm assuming that's part of the calculation. <laughs> well, I mean, the flip side here is that a lot of the employees are also stockholders sure. to some extent. Yep. So yep. now we're seeing a real distortion in the industry you know, when the stock's going up, you've got an incentive, you know, you're incentivized to work harder. But when the stock's going down, you're actually incentivized to work less. Right. But also <laughs> cutting your 401k conversation doesn't incentivize me very much either. So, yeah. Yeah, I've got just, you do just mixed feelings about that. That just doesn't seem, if the shareholders were getting a cut <clears throat> as well, fine. You know, if the dividend was halved and then the workers take a cut, that would seem more... Um, a little more equitable. A little more equitable, Yeah. Well, as always, we appreciate uh, folks reaching out with comments, corrections, uh, whatever else you want to say to us. You can hit us up at packapushers.net slash FU if you hear anything that you want to weigh in on. We're always happy to get your feedback. Uh, let's dive into the actual news now. First, Ericsson, Intel, and Microsoft have partnered to demonstrate the feasibility of network slicing down to the laptop level. Uh, Ericsson Lab said it showed, uh, quote, the use of multiple network slices on cellular connected laptop devices. And the idea is you can set up policies where... Your business critical apps are going to get a high throughput network slice while gaming and maybe watching YouTube get a best effort slice. Yeah, well, you can tell that there's not a lot of news this week because <laughs> this is the lead off of the news article. Yeah, it's a little it thin It is a thin this week. news week this week. Uh, 
just to note that, and uh, we're sort of not into the season yet, really, and a lot of budgets have slowed down. I, I am broadly not expecting there to be a lot of news in the first quarter. So we are sort of ranging far and wide to find things to get onto the show, but we're not extending the show or filling in time. We're just trying to get something that would be useful to you in the context of the network break that we talk about every week. And um, particularly on this one, they're talking about network slicing. And we know that telcos have been flogging the network slicing horse for a very long period of time now. And the basic principle here about network slicing is that the carriers want more profitable services. They don't want to just be able to be commoditized out of business and bandwidth is bandwidth and it's all public and away we go. Um, but the problem is slicing is that having, say, AT&T in the US and BT in the UK, what's the point of slicing, right? You can tell me I'm going to put you on a slice on my mobile laptop, you know, and some of it gets best effort and some of it goes through a business grade. But as soon as it leaves that telco, where's it go? Your cost guarantees get lost, right? Sure. The, the point of connect, buying a service from AT&T and BT is because they're the best networks in the business. You buy them because they have the highest performance. And as soon as you leave that network, you've got no guarantees over the packet. I, I think it's a very thin argument to say that network slicing's got a got a argument. You know. Well, yeah. So the the press release talking about this basically calls out the fact that the goal here is to create more business opportunities for communication service providers to find a way to monetize five G. So. It's not necessarily a great solution, but they're sort of desperate to mm. all of the investment they've been making in 5G. I think that the communication service providers are, are scrambling to find out how to monetize it and not just be uh, dumb pipes. Yeah, but I mean, network slicing, this, you know, they're using a technology in, in 5G called uh, user equipment route selection policy. Do you get that? <laughs> uh, which basically enables devices to select between different slices according to the application. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the actual Windows 11 laptop that they're doing here, and this is also available on Android, at least in a proof-of-concept mode, means that uh, the endpoint signals to the Ericsson 5G and says, I want this to be on a you know high-priority slice, and this and then this traffic can go on another. That sounds really good, but I'm not sure that um, you know Windows administrators, Windows desktop administrators are ready for that yet. And even in five years' time, which is about how long it would be before 5G comes in a laptop. I mean, we don't even have 5G in a laptop, right? right. So, um, but they, they say that the use of multiple network slices on cellular connected laptop devices for consumer and enterprise use cases and collaboration applications. There's no problem here today. What are the, What's the problem they're fixing? Those things work fine as they are yep. on 5G or off for most, in for many countries in the world, not all. And uh, I'm really not 100% sure here. Yeah, my take is that, you know, uh, they're banking on uh, a number of uh, customers who just don't trust their employees to do the job. And I think these slackers are out here watching Netflix at home instead of working. And so if I can find a way to, you know, degrade their mm -hmm. Netflix performance, maybe I'll get them back to work. Uh, and I think there is a market or an appetite for that kind of control over the end user. But I don't think that 5G network slicing yeah, is the way to do, to do it. You're not going to do that in the network. Right, exactly. The yeah, network slicing is not the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. head office isn't going to push a policy into, you know, Ericsson's 5G network at BT to say that this is, that's 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 a stretch. Right. And the other thing is why, if, if you've got a home user, they're already paying for their own internet connection. Are you going to really, as the company, pony up to get them on 5G just so you can make their work lives a little bit more miserable? Mm. I doubt it. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, and if I look back in history, you think of all the things that didn't work back. We had RSVP, which was supposed to be able to signal from end to end, and that only worked on a single carrier. QoS worked uh, out had, great. Yeah, MPLS multi-carrier technologies never worked out. The idea was that I'd be able to signal my MPLS 
and it would go from carrier to carrier. There are some carrier-carrier implementations, but they're very far and few between. Um, and if you go even further back, things like Frame Relay and ATM are also network slicing technologies, and they didn't last for more than a decade. So they want to spend all this money putting this sort of technology together, and then I'm not convinced that the use case exists for slicing yet. Definitely a use case of 5G. I'm coming around to the use case of 5G as an alternative to Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi isn't enough for certain applications. But outside of that, I'm not 100% sure that slicing is the future yet. As always, links in the show notes if you want to read up for yourself. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, on the heels of a reported $10 billion investment by Microsoft into OpenAI, which makes the ChatGPT chatbot and others, Microsoft has announced two integrations of ChatGPT into its Teams platform and its Viva Sales app. Uh, Viva Sales was announced in October 22. Uh, first, for the Teams platform, they're gonna. You can now use ChatGPT to uh, recap uh, Teams meetings, meaning uh, it'll generate notes for you, it'll recommend tasks, and it will personalize highlights to help you get the most important information from that meeting to you. Yeah, which is weird because um, WebEx was doing that a while back. That was a feature that they had already announced. But that also goes with sentiment analysis. So what they're actually doing on meetings, uh, and I believe this is a WebEx feature and a few of the other collaborations, is they actually monitor all the language used in meetings and then report back to HR if anybody's swearing Mm -hmm. or abusing people. Mm -hmm. uh, And then also looking to see if employees are happy or if they're working hard. So this that's what an intelligent recap means, by the way. Oh, you might actually also use it to send around as minutes of the meeting too. Right, right. uh, personalized highlights. That's very, very challenging. I mean, this is all sounds pretty good in reality, but I think one of the things that I've seen in with anybody who's using chat GPT is it's inaccurate. Um, most of the, you know, for a significant proportion of the time. In fact, it's even worse because it's actually ap- accurate enough that it's close. And I think human nature will be to just go like, well, that's good enough. We'll just ship it. And ah, if anything goes wrong, I can just blame the AI. It's going to come unstuck, I think. Yeah, I think it says more about uh, meetings and maybe how not great they are than it does about the yeah. capability of ChatGPT. So it's sort of like yeah. trying to slap some uh, paint on a, a tool that's not that <laughs> very useful in the first place. Yeah, I think, you know, having something that can automatically take notes and, and just give you a summary of the meeting, maybe that's great if you're in meetings all day and you don't necessarily recall what your takeaways were supposed to be. That could be useful. Uh, I think... If we really want to advance the state of the art here, we should just have ChatGP go to all our meetings and we can just get on with it. Mm-hmm. And just do it for yeah, us. Just yeah, just do it for you. ChatGPT av- can talk to itself and everybody else will just get to yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> Avatars. Your personal avatar is out attending the meeting for you while you're yes. doing something else. I, I think oh, there's, the thing about this is, is that Microsoft wants to be seen as innovating here. Mm-hmm. They've fairly much missed the AI. Google, of course, has got AI chops. And this use of AI is something that they feel they need to add in, and this is the way that they're going about it. But it feels very premature to me for the reasons that I've explained. However, um, I do note that I've read some articles from PR marketing people who are using ChatGPT to write scenarios and sample text, and they might use it to generate 10 emails that they're going to use to do a marketing campaign, and then they work with them. Mm -hmm. So there is a way to harness this. If I was in a consulting firm, you know, if I was at McKinsey, I'd be able to train a you know chat GPT on a whole bunch of more existing reports. reports. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one that nobody ever reads, right? <laughs> so you can produce a lot more analyst reports now for a whole lot less effort. Uh, potentially you can either do more work and make more money or you know just churn out junk reports. So what we've seen is a lot of media websites who rely on volume, you know, the more web pages there are, the more ad clicks there are. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a number of 
press services announced that they're writing using AI to write press releases. You know, company will put out a press release. They'll use an AI that just sort of sponges, spooges out a page that basically rewrites the press release and then tacks on a couple of paragraphs of contextual information and and call it done and publish it. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Well, you sort of but could you evaluate it to evaluate a tender or a resume? Mm, people will. Yeah, so that leads into the second part of the story uh, with the Viva sales tool. Microsoft uh, is going to let it uh, essentially write emails for you for salespeople uh, who spend a lot of time in email communicating with clients. Uh, the new chat GPT feature is going to generate suggested email content for things like replying to a query or creating a proposal. Uh, Microsoft says managing emails consumes about 66% of a seller's day, so hoping to automate that so they can just focus on the selling. And as somebody who's on the victim side of that that contract, you know that uh, <laughs> that, that process, activity. Yes, I am just not looking forward to more e- more badly written emails that are out of context. That is just not going to make me a happy customer. I think that's that that's disturbing. Anyway, well, that is our future. Lots of articles on this are all the way around about how Microsoft is going to use this, but it does put my uh, Microsoft very much back in the game for AI, which is not something it's historically had. All right, uh, moving on. British Telecom wants to test uncrewed drones to deliver 5G service from the sky in areas with poor or no coverage uh, from mobile towers. So according to BT, the flying platform's antenna can provide 4G and 5G connections direct to consumer mobile phones with throughput of up to 150 millibits, uh, megabits per second over an area of 15,000 square kilometers. BT says that's the equivalent coverage to 450 terrestrial masts. Uh, BT's partnering with a company called Stratospheric Platforms. Uh, at present, BT's just testing the antennas because the actual aircraft isn't flying, so they're just putting these magical antennas up on a high place and testing it while they wait for the aircraft to actually be developed. Someone's project was running behind schedule, so they pulled out a stunt to show that the project's running on schedule, <laughs> right? Yes. So. Um, I have lots of problems with this. Uh, first of all, the UK is one of the windiest countries in the world. So if you're going to put up a drone, <laughs> it's going to work hard to stay in location right. where it needs to be. Right. Right. Um, and also the weather is incredibly variable here because it's uh, it's located between the, the major landmass of Europe as, and the Atlantic and then the, the, and all this sort of stuff. So it has this, so this doesn't this just feels like a bit of a stunt mm-hmm. in some sense. I'm sure there's a company that wants to do this and they all very much committed. But if you look at some fundamental facts here, uh, I don't think this is going to be an everyday thing. But I do think it, there are use cases where if the weather's good and the wind's okay. You might want to throw up some coverage for uh, a disaster area or you've got some sort of media event that's in an area and you need to provide an extra tower, but you don't can't drive a so for example, we have festivals here in the UK. Very very popular. Yep. And hundred thousand people can descend on a paddock for, you know, a five day weekend. (laughs) And do you really want to drive a truck in a week ahead, set it up, you know, do all the bits and pieces or you know, if you could just fly in a drone for the from you know eight till eight or something, mm-hmm. would that be more more satisfactory? Maybe that sounds more realistic than what they're talking about here. Though I think that somewhere between the reality, uh, the blow, the marketing bloviation has gotten in the way. But you know, I'm a bit cynical, Drew. Maybe I'm I'm a bit not seeing something. Well, there, there's more to come here. Uh, according to our story in the Register, the aircraft is going to use a hydrogen fuel cell uh, to allow it to stay aloft for up to a week. So not only are we waiting on the plane itself, but also the development of hydrogen fuel cell technology. So. Uh, they say the first flight's planned for Q4 2024, but I, I would not be holding my breath. Yeah, I mean, the idea that uh, the airport authorities, you know, the FAA mm-hmm. and the, the UK equivalent is going to let a hydrogen fuel cell into the air to wander around unattended 
Mm. Right to hover for a week. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like, there's a lot of issues here. Yeah. And I will also you note. Know, next to one of the busiest airports in the world, Heathrow, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> just. <laughs> yeah. Like I can see this working in certain places, but the, the challenges here just, they're not insurmountable, but they're like. The reality is just a little bit. I, I take your point exactly. Things like disaster recovery, uh, maybe some industrial agricultural use cases, things where you need temporary connectivity makes good sense. But as you know, providing continuous coverage to people in a remote location, a hard time biting on this. Yeah, but if you're doing agricultural stuff, you're just going to run a LoRa or a Harwit, you know, like a really low powered long haul WAN, and they go for like twenty miles. Sure. Yep. That's a that's a big farm, right? Right. If you could. You, yep. And you can put up a base station a couple of laces around. You can cover a lot of space with those sorts of things or, you know, jack the antenna up further and get above the curvature of the earth. You can get out a lot further. So, no, I'm not seeing it. This just, it does feel like a cross between a stunt and stupid. So, whatever. I will remind uh, listeners that other folks have tried similar approaches. Uh, Google canceled a program that would have used high-altitude balloons to provide wireless internet. It shut down that project in early 2021 after years of investment and development. And back in 2018, Facebook shut down a project to deliver internet connectivity via solar-powered drones. So I guess BT looked at that and was like, yeah, we could do it. They could. We could. Yeah. We'll get it. Your ads paying for technology innovation. <laughs> All right, we're going to move into some financial results. We'll start with the Juniper Networks. They announced Q4 and full year financial results for the quarter. The company had revenues of $1.4 billion, up 11% year over year, and net income of $180 million. And for the year, Juniper brought in revenues of $5.3 billion, up 12% year over year, with net income of $471 million, up 86% year over year. So a good year for Juniper. Yeah, it was. And, you know, you can tell from reading the analyst discussions that everybody's pretty jovial and pretty pleased about the whole thing. The first thing I'll say is that uh, you remember we talked a couple of years ago about Juniper's returning to the enterprise mm -hmm. and saying that they obviously realized that the telcos aren't going to give them the growth they wanted. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I'm going to call it, I'd say that Juniper's back in the enterprise, given that this is one of the standout sectors that they highlighted yep. in the resorts is that their growth in the enterprise, they're growing in the SD-WAN space, they're growing in the data center space, they've got some campus stuff that's starting to get you know missed in the campus with the wired and Wi-Fi with the AI ops and all that sort of stuff. So I'd say that, you know, calling it, you know, we got it right. And check. Juniper is pretty much back in the enterprise, which is good news. And I also think that they talked a lot about their annual recurring revenue, which truly consists of just rateable software subscriptions. They got that to increase 43%. Now that's not as much as Cisco has been able to squeeze out of its customer base, but it is a step in that direction where, um, like when you look at Cisco's results, they've actually got something like three years worth of revenue backed up in just, un, you know, mm. committed subscription licensing. Mm -hmm. They don't really have to ship anything between now and three years time to make their share price numbers, which is kind of weird, but there you go. Uh, so it's actually quite good. I'm quite excited to see Juniper do well and start to present some, you know, competition to the market. So, yeah. And we talked about the success of Appstra last week, of course. And just a, just a closing note, Drew, just one thing. If you want a jarring note, just so we don't get too gushy about all of this, <laughs> I noticed that Ubiquity has achieved a market capitalization of $18 billion this week. Wow. While Juniper is $10 billion market. Interesting. So Ubiquity is significantly larger than Juniper. I just want you to think about that. Now, you could say that Ubiquity's share price is highly inflated for various reasons, and I suspect there would be some reality in that, and there might be something unusual going on with the share price, but still. 18 billion versus 10 billion, ubiquity is bigger than Juniper. Think about that. That is a little bit, uh, yeah, that takes some mm. thinking. Yeah, hmm. to revisit that. 
All right, uh, moving on to Amazon, they reported Q4 and full year results. We're interested in the AWS segment, and for the quarter, that business unit had sales of $21.4 billion, uh, up 20% year over year. And for the full year, Amazon Web Services did $80.1 billion in sales, up 29% year over year, although on the whole, parent company Amazon lost $2.7 billion for the year. Yeah, so AWS obviously is the piece that we're interested in because we want to have a measure of whether people are actually moving to the off-print cloud. And you might recall a couple of years ago, we were talking about AWS having growth of 40% in the market mm-hmm. and spending billions of dollars, like tens of billions of dollars to, to build out its capacity. Well, that growth has now slowed to 20% um, and definitely looks like it's going to slow down even further in the coming quarters. Now, it, analyst views on this vary. Uh, some indicate that the enterprise isn't moving off-prem as quickly as they had hoped, thought, imagined. Uh, but there's also the tech slowdown as well. So investors who are investing in new companies or investing in building new products have pulled right back. And so um, now that you have to price the interest rate increases into funding of these companies, they're reducing the amount. So the, these companies are now starting to say, well, there's only so much I've got to spend. And that flows through into the you know reductions in technology spending. And a lot of existing startups are now spending more money to spend less money on off-prem cloud because it's so expensive. So if you get into forums where a lot of the cloudy people are hanging out, they're all banging on about the fact that they now spend about at least half of every day working out how to spend less. <laughs> that must be a good value spending of money. Uh, you know, half of your work face is working out how to, you know, wasting your money spent to spend less money, mm-hmm. which is a bit weird. Um, so generally the the assumption is that there's a lot of lackness around spend analysis during the last you know three to five years of, of virtually free money, okay, free of interest rate. But, uh, you know, I, I think this is probably good. We need time to digest AWS and enterprises shouldn't rush into it, in my view. And that's been my persistent view right since it started. Sure. Uh, yes, Amazon, AWS is off its growth curve that, you know, when it first came out of the gate, had amazing growth rates that was always bound to slow, but mm. still... 30% uh, for the year is, you know, Cisco would cut off its own arm to get a growth rate like that. So still doing mm. pretty good. Law of large numbers here, which is that you're looking at, you know, as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, it's harder to grow and grow and grow. Right. So that is an impact as well. Yeah, for sure. But yep. yeah. yeah, it has to be said that, you know, Cisco is still bigger than AWS. If you just take AWS alone, AWS's year revenue uh, is, I think, $21 billion? Uh, no, it's, I think it's the, no, actually, AWS is bigger than Cisco. It's... Uh, uh, annual revenue was $80 billion. And Cisco's annual revenue is about 55 Yeah, so. Yeah, AWS is still ahead. All right, uh, a little surfing dog story. Greg, you found this piece online. Uh, apparently, people are developing, I think researchers in Japan are developing lasers to shoot down insects. How great is this? I mean, you've got to, you've got to, this is what we all want, is a laser that's going to shoot down insects, anti-insect laser gun turrets designed by Osaka University in Japan and it's expected to work on cockroaches as well. Now, I can get behind this technology, Drew, because one of the problems with pesticides and chemicals is that they're sort of persistent, they're often toxic, oh, yeah. and this, they often have, you know, don't they don't just take down the thing that you're trying to hit, they often take down, you know, like right, they kill, up, right? they kill good insects, they affect your crops. Yeah, yeah right. there's a various, and I think these, these lasers are being designed for agricultural use, right? It's not... Uh, it's not a home defense at this point. <laughs> yes. Well, they're meant for targeting, you know, insects and so forth, so moths. So in this case, weirdly, they're talking about tobacco and taking out tobacco cutworm moths in the video, which is quite quite a thing. But, you know, I just think that you could have some really good targeting software on here that only shoots specific insects. Mm-hmm. You can have good imaging. You can, 
you know, thing, and you can say, I'm going to take out all the insects, but keep the good ones, like bees. We want bees. Right. right. Shoot them off, not the bees. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shoot the nasty things and leave the bees and the other good things alone and, and keep moving. And I think um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But it also, even around houses and things like that, I think that that would be users. You know, you, this house protected by an anti-insect <laughs> laser right? <laughs> Activate the insect turrets. <laughs> pew, pew. How great would that be? That would, that would be great. It's, it's, it's not the Star Wars I imagined as a child, but, you know, I'll take it if I can get an insect shooting laser. At them. Yeah, they to... say it's probably not viable on a farm because laser's not going to be too practical. But, you know, maybe there's a case in, uh, in other, like, hydroponics farms and things like that. That might work. Mm-hmm. All right, as always, link in the show notes if you want to go check it out for yourself, and I do recommend it. It's pretty funny. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're going to talk about uh, VMware and cloud migration. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about cloud migration and operating in a multi-cloud environment. We're sponsored by VMware, and we're speaking with Expedient, a VMware partner. Expedient's also a cloud service provider. They run 14 data centers across the U.S. Our guest is Brian Smith, CEO at Expedient. Uh, Brian, welcome to the podcast. And can you just take a few seconds to tell us what Expedient does? Sure. Appreciate you having me on. So Expedient's a full stack cloud service provider. So really what that means is we can help a client with all the different generations of their technology from physical data centers through their VMware workloads and then making their cloud operations work really seamlessly. Okay. So that makes sense. Uh, So how do you use VMware to support your customers' cloud initiatives? VMware is our most strategic partner and they're the foundation of our cloud. So Expedient provides one of the largest VMware-based public clouds in the US. So we use their entire technology stack uh, from the security side to the general virtualization and all the way out to the desktop. So I think from my point of view, that that's what a lot of people are actually doing. They're not, we talk a lot about multi-cloud or, you know, people having lots of diverse technologies, but I think a lot of enterprises are actually looking at focusing on their core vendors and what I hear you saying is, or I think you hear you saying, is that this has got values in just focusing down that path. Yeah, absolutely. That you know, one of the big differences when Expedient thinks about cloud and, and using VMware is, you know, we really think about doing cloud different. Is at least how we have the conversation, and it's a different way to think about that cloud transformation versus you, know, you hear Gartner talk recently about chapter one of cloud was everything's going to go to the hyperscale, mm-hmm. and that chapter mm-hmm. one really closed at the end of twenty two. And chapter two of cloud is about putting the right workload on the right cloud or, or in the right location and simplifying operations across all of that. And that's really been core to VMware over time. And, and that's a lot of our belief is if you do the, inf- the transformation in a different manner or specifically change the order that you do the transformation, you can have significantly hmm. uh, different impact for the organization as a whole. So this is very much multi-cloud. I've got on-prem, I've got off-prem. Maybe I'm using cloud, like what I call cloud native, which is AWS's in proprietary standards or Google's proprietary standards or mm-hmm. Azure's proprietary standards, or perhaps I'm going with my on-prem, you know, proprietary standard of VMware where I'm doing VMware on AWS or VMware on Azure. And it's really going to be this blended solution. But if you can keep as much of it as possible grounded in a single technology stack, there's some sort of benefits for people. Is that is that the story? Yeah, it, it, a lot of it is about the the speed that you could get to that cloud operating model. So mm-hmm. that you know, people initially thought that they had to do complete uh, app refactoring to uh, get to that cloud operating model. And mm-hmm. you know, so our our enterprise cloud that's built on top of VMware uses the technologies that companies already uh, know 
that already just works and it has all the security built into the stack to begin with. So that, you know, instead of doing a, what people would refer to as a lift and shift, and that's kind of a bad term in the industry, it's much more of a lift and optimize because when people move on to our enterprise cloud platform using the VMware stack, generally they end up reducing resources by about 30%. But the mm -hmm. real secret is about eliminating all their technical debt because it's a very prescriptive technology stack. So instead of dealing with 20 or 30 different vendors, it's a mm -hmm. service that all those things are integrated. So that time that you uh, save from dealing with the tech debt, then you can invest in things that are more strategic for the business and maybe applications that are then cloud native like you're talking about, but then yeah. you're also standardizing how you operate across those different platforms. So you have that one set of automation, the one set of security, the one set of, of visibility and, and observability so that you truly can extract the value from that cloud operating model yeah. that you were trying to get to. This is really interesting discussion because one of the things that you get with VMware is that if you're running it on-prem, most t technology teams can really only afford to run five or 10 or 20 VMs on a server, even though that server could realistically host 100 or 200, mm -hmm. because you know if it goes out, the blast radius is, is enormous. But if you're in a shared environment using VMware, uh, you know, uh, like your multi-cloud, then all of a sudden the servers get maximum efficiency and there is savings there going into that uh, outsourcing that on-prem model. Yeah, and it also gives you VMware in that consumption model. So you're not trying to predict, you know, where you're going to end up in two or three years or four years, the life of the hardware, and and then sizing and scaling for that. You're just buying for what you need today. So a, a lot of the ways that we kind of have the conversation with people is kind of this concept of Legos. Now, when you're building your own internal IT, every piece of technology is an individual Lego piece. And mm. every company, if you gave everybody the exact same bag of Legos, and told them to build their solution, they could all build something, but it would be a little different and it could take a while to get to something that's really functional. And yeah. the difference of using it through a service provider is you're buying the box of Legos, so you have the picture of what it's gonna be, there's uh -huh. a clear vision of what it's gonna be, uh -huh. but the you're instructions the are also inside so that you're gonna get there much faster. There's a difference between buying having a box of loose Legos and buying a kit that builds the Millennium Falcon. Exactly. Thinking at the other end comes out looking roughly like a Millennium Falcon, but if you're doing it with a box of Legos and no instructions, it's much more difficult to put together. So you're bringing that sort of the skills that you have from hosting a large, you know, VMware cloud to say, here's my, you know, expedient Falcon. <laughs> I know right. I'm stretching that a little bit, but, you know, conceptually. Yeah. And, and that's really how you get rid of that tech debt is, you know, mm -hmm. because those pieces are predefined, what their purpose is, how they function versus every individual company being a snowflake on the back end so that they're the only group that can do kind of the support. So in, instead that we really run, uh, and it's not just Expedia, but any service provider, you know, it really runs that day-to-day -day operations and allows your company and your employees to move up the stack related to the value and the things that are unique to your business. So we mentioned multi-cloud. Uh, obviously you're uh, as Expedia helping customers run in a cloud, but what about uh, if I've got workloads that I need to go in other clouds for other reasons. Can you support that as well? All of our infrastructure is designed to work across multiple different clouds. So you can have a single pane that you're using for observability, a single uh, set of security standards so that you can have you know one set of security rules that apply no matter if it's running in our cloud or in a VMware on AWS cloud, in a cloud native part of AWS, or even on-prem inside your own private cloud. And the same thing holds true from an automation standpoint so that you, know, you can have one set of applications that can be deployed multiple different places. And then our tooling is interacting with the APIs of those different clouds 
to, again, simplify the day two operations that often people don't think about. So as an example of that, you recently worked with a large university with a lot of students, 80,000, it says here in my notes, who were struggling with technical debt. I can almost promise you that every university is struggling with technical debt, (laughs) some of it very old. How did you help them to achieve their goals? And what was the challenges that you solved there? The university had gone down the pretty standard initiative that we hear a lot of companies talk about, that they want to go to the cloud. And the cloud for them mm-hmm. uh, meant one of the hyperscalers. And they had been kind of going down that path for over a year and a half, nearly two years. And they had over 700 applications that they were trying to move that were housed in about 585 racks of, of physical hardware. And you know, they had their own virtualization internally. And they had you know, many ger- generations of different technology. And there were you know, just around you know, 15,000 servers, you know, a combination of physical and virtual. And they were having a hard time really trying to refactor those applications to get into that cloud operating model. So you know, we, we propose a different way to think about the problem and first move everything out of their current operations onto our VMware-based cloud. And mm. their team initially you know, said, this is impossible. There's no way it's going to happen. Was, I remember the, the story vividly that we went and we actually sent a team of engineers uh, and they just showed up on a, a Monday morning and they gave mm-hmm. us uh, 30 servers that were some of their hardest, nastiest things to migrate. And by mm-hmm. the end of the day, all of those were actually running on our platform. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, they actually you know, banged a giant gong. And it, it, that was part of their ritual uh, from you know, how they do their agile development and their agile yeah, cycles, yeah. Uh, claiming uh, success there. And that kind of built the original confidence. So right. you know, after that point... <laughs> it, it wouldn't... I mean, moving 30 of their gnarliest, toughest... Uh, servers and their applications and getting it right. That's that's fairly that's fairly convincing. Let's face it, right? Well, in three hours, especially. <laughs> that's right. That's what my point is. But that I mean, I don't know why people see that as so hard. VMware was designed to do that. The idea of getting it inside of hypervisor and then all of the tool sets that VMware's put in place around that actually makes that possible. I, I'm not entirely sure why people are struggling so hard with the idea that if I move my ESX hypervisor with its applications, aside from the networking challenge, which is now much more solved than it used to be, it's still got problems, don't get me wrong, but you know, why would people not believe that in 2023? A lot of times it's somewhat of a religion thing. The companies have their own uh, technology for network, their own technology for storage, their own technology that they've picked and built that snowflake. And it's difficult until they kind of zoom out and say, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve and Mm -hmm. give up some of the those different pieces on some of their legacy thinking and looking at Mm -hmm. at the benefits of really that converged ecosystem and how they work together. So the the networking side uh, with VMware was was a huge piece. Also, uh, mm. everything is vSAN based uh, from a storage perspective. You know, so it, it really consolidated a number of the different technologies. And that organization ended up moving 15,000 servers and completing that entire cloud transformation in roughly nine months. And the first wow. term of their contract, no people reduction, but in hard infrastructure costs, you know, they stated that they say $50 million. So pretty meaningful. That is meaningful. 15,000 VM instances. Moved in nine months, saving fifty million dollars. I mean, you can basically sky print that, and you'd get away with it, right? That everybody would be like, "Okay, fair enough." Yeah, twenty five hundred of those in- servers were physical that actually moved to virtual machines that they didn't think many of their mm. databases could be virtualized and would function. Uh, mm. and so they just hadn't done it for years. You know, yeah. But you know, we showed the performance, showed that it worked fine on on VMware, 
I'll bet yeah. like 40 million of that infrastructure cost was storage. Yeah. I'll bet most of that infrastructure savings wasn't surfing. It wasn't networking. It was storage. Oh, not, you don't have to answer that question. I just wouldn't mention it in passing because storage is just sits really big in the pervasive beliefs that storage has got some mystical magic associated with it. But when you move into the cloud, there's so much more of it and you can actually choose the different levels. And vSAN, you know, it's 10 years into vSAN. It actually works now as Absolutely. opposed to, you know. Yeah, and your assumption is actually accurate that, you know, most people assume also you're going to increase costs during the migration and transition because of overlap. In their specific case, they actually reduced every single month their licensing costs. And a lot of that was also on the storage side. And even the first year, they were net positive in savings. Let me ask a question about backup. This is the other one that people get. Is backup better now? Because often doing backups on-prem is very difficult. Tapes or you know snapshots and all that sort of stuff. Is that better too? From a cost perspective or performance? Let's start with cost because that's the one that uh, the only thing that most executives care about. Performance is kind of like not their problem. And I challenge that that's actually flipped in the last couple of years with ransomware that mm -hmm. the ability to recover has flipped some. But so from a cost perspective, you know, they definitely had a, a reduction, but we're seeing you know, that as well, that we can give a all disk-based solution and then replicate it. We run multi-hundred gig uh, backbone between our data centers. Mm -hmm. And you know, so we can provide those multiple different sites uh, and simplify the entire process. And it can be a mixture of things that are, we're just doing snaps uh, versus things that you know, is actual agent-based so that if you need to have you know, the database and, and everything in a consistent format, and then we're replicating to uh, an additional site. So you're actually giving them ransomware recovery. So you're using a more advanced sort of backup solution or more, let's not say advanced, let's say more modern uh, yeah, backup solution. Modern. That so that you can actually go straight to recovering from a ransomware incident. So if those files were corrupted a week ago and you need to re return the files, you can actually do that selectively and practically. You can even identify the ransomware and that sort of thing and, and do the recovery. That's correct. So think about it like a DVR for your mm. home. You know, that essentially you have five minute or five second uh, increments that you could dial back to any five second point in time and recover from in there. And then mm -hmm. when we're doing the recovery, we will actually take the virtual machine and instant boot it onto the backup server. And it uses mm -hmm. the compute on that server uh, with VMware. We can actually do a live you know, vMotion of that server once it's booted up you know, from the backup uh, server and, and then move it back into one of the production or DR clusters. So that mm -hmm. allows people to come back up in a matter of minutes. That's significant because for a university, a lot of that is actually very difficult to do. Like getting realistic backups, allocating costs to backup is very difficult because quite often it's just easier to say, oh, we'll skip that this time around because the budget doesn't stretch. But it sounds to me like you're actually making it more possible or more reasonable for them to achieve. Would that be unreasonable? No, that, that's accurate. And you know, they have a full DR now that is about a third of what their previous uh, costs were. And it's fully mm -hmm. functional that they can test it at any point because it'll test, it'll spin up in a se separate bubble. And one yeah. of the unique things we do, because Expedient actually started as a network provider, that you know we can actually uh, span across our backbone the IPs so that if they want to uh, spin up just individual applications in a DR site, they can do that without uh, having any other changes mm -hmm. inside the network. It will just work and function. Or mm -hmm. if they do have that event where they have to hit that big red button, you can actually we can actually move all of your public facing IPs to a second site and announce from mm -hmm. there. And it takes about five minutes for everything to reconverge. So it really simplifies that network design where people never thought that that type of opportunity was possible. And the network side is often overlooked when you think of uh, those DR events and the complexity that brings into it.
Well, that does uh, come to the end of our time. Thank you, Brian, for joining us. Uh, thank you to Expedient and to VMware for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.